0: Distro Hopping, the idea that Linux is fun and the myriad ways people put distros together should be reviewed often. My name is Moss. I live in eastern Tennessee.
1: I'm Dale. I live in northeast Ohio. And I'm Eric. I live in southwestern Florida.
0: Welcome to Distro Hoppers Digest. We love checking distros out. New distros, new versions of older distros, and even some we may have overlooked. We each have
2: our preferences in complexity or desktop or package management. Perhaps we can help you find a new distro or better understand one that has piqued your curiosity.
1: The idea of this podcast is that we each install a new distro to our chosen hardware for three to four weeks and use it as much as possible, perhaps even as our daily driver. We record all of our trials, tribulations, fixes, and what we like and what we don't.
2: I tend to take on the more advanced distros and give them a go.
0: Well, I tend to prefer looking at distros that would be kind to a new user especially one who is hoping to move over from another
1: operating system such as Windows or macOS. We intend to give as much information as possible on each distro and we will also mention what hardware we are using and might comment on how we think the hardware may affect the rating.
0: Welcome to Distro Hoppers Digest episode 43 recorded on the 2nd of June 2023. For this episode, we will be reviewing ArchCraft, Farron OS, and Kubuntu (music) 23.04. Monthly foibles wherein we discuss what we did this month. I managed to get all kinds of days of work this past month, my best month this school year. Of course, that is to be followed by two months of nothing as the school term is over. I've been keeping quite busy between that and all my podcasts. I also tried using EasyOS. It was easy, but getting applications which were not already provided turned out to be quite difficult. I also mailed two computers and a dock to Dale. Also, Bill Hauser took pity on me over my troubles with the EBXYA sound box and bought me a Focusrite Scarlet Solo, which I'm using now. I also want to mention that my next online concert will be Sunday the 11th of June at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on Festival of the Living Rooms. This will be a semi-public Zoom meeting with information to be found at the festival page on Facebook or in the Phil Caven Discord channel. There will be dozens of great singers and songwriters featured over a three-day weekend, and they saved the best, well, me anyway, for nearly last. Anything exciting going on with you, Dale?
2: Well, I was a guest on Mintcast episode 411, The entered section was on my origins of the graphical user interface article. It was great fun spending some time with the Mintcast crew. Leading up to that Sunday, I read through my article to create some talking points for the Mintcast show script. I did some more research for the podcast. It was details I found while researching my third article. I wanted to reconfigure my network since I was running out of available ports on the uh, other side of my uh, office here. So I drove up the Micro Center and bought a USW Lite 8 PoE. It is the second generation of the 8-port Switch 860 watt that I already have in use. I have to say, at least Ubiquity has better named model names than other companies. At least they describe what it is. It is the same specs-wise as the first generation Switch. 8 gigabit ports with 4 unpowered and 4 optionally powered. I'm going to use the 5 port flex that I've outgrown on my main computer desk. It is powered by PoE, which is power over ethernet. So I will not need to plug in another AC adapter, which I've got plenty of stuff plugged in under my desk here. I don't need another thing. A friend hopped to Void Linux and has been telling me about it. I reviewed it back in episode 18 in December of 2020. In addition to liking the experience, I thought it would be fun to explore Void together. We have already shared some of our experiences and helped each other. He more so than me so far since I'm still learning it. We both tried the base ISO, which is the bare minimum to boot the OS. It is similar to the state arches in after you have the uh, base install. I dove into Void just a little bit more in my previous reviews since my review mostly centered around the XFCE uh, desktop that they had on the ISO. Since I needed to build from the ground up, it took longer than I intended, which is part of the fun. Well, until things don't work as they intended. More on this later in my beautiful failures. My non-computer related activities were errands that I didn't feel like doing last time I was home. This was due to my sinus slash allergies issues i had had. I found out that I can have my U.S. mail held at the post office for up to 30 days. They needed to wait a few days to reapply. I knew this before but I thought it was only for a couple weeks. This is an excellent option for me. My secured mailbox at my apartment complex is a decent size, but not, you know, enough depending on how much unsolicited and misaddressed mail I get. I get these newspaper things that I have no idea where they came from, and I have no idea why I got on their their mailing list. And I've talked to the postmaster of my local mail unit, and they're like, you have to contact them. We just deliver what's addressed to you. (laughs) And it's not even to current resident. It's my name. So, anyways, I found a somewhat nearby business that could replace a riveted button in one of my jeans. A lot of my jeans are starting to do riveting instead of actually being sewn in. They may be very happy since they're not uh, cheap jeans to uh, to replace. While looking around the Duluth Trading Company store, I saw they had milk crates for sale. I've been looking for these for a little bit. I haven't really searched that hard, but... I was happy to find them. Uh, I want to use them in my company truck. We have the uh, side boxes which are underneath the bed uh the pan that l- the mattress lays in, and it's going to uh hold my oil antifreeze and uh washer fluid for the uh, for the windshield, so they're not going to be rolling around and and leaking and making a mess anymore, which is good. I received the uh two computers in the dock that moss mentioned as of this writing i haven't done anything with them other than boot them up play around with them for for a little bit of in the evening a couple evenings ago finishing the uh, podcast script was the priority before i start any of my other projects you know it's pretty much like 40 years ago as a child (laughs) you have to do your homework before you can play with your toys I thought I was over that, but apparently adulthood, you still <laughs> you still have to do that. So, in any case. What, you grew up? Oh, that's what I've told previous girlfriends and some of my friends, and that's like, yeah, men get older, we never mature. And I'm sure any women listening to this are laughing now because it is true. I was impressed with the amount of packing and the manner of packaging. I think Moss really has a future in packing computers for shipment. I honestly, I thought the UPS store packed it for him, but no, he told me he did it himself. It looked like a professional job. I was impressed. The
0: computers I packed myself, the dock they packed.
2: Yeah, that's what I was saying. I thought it was the opposite. I thought you packed the dock and they did the computers because that uh, dock was sort of like a half beep attempt at uh, wrapping something. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, I buy a lot of laptops and I just keep the boxes and packaging. It really helps when something happens and you want to get rid of one. Yep,
2: that's why my friends ask me why I have so many boxes and stuff. And it's like, you know, if you know when you're going to need them and boxes are expensive. So I have added the Lenovo T560 and its dock, along with the M700 ThinkCore i360-100T to my collection. They uh, kind of nicknamed it the Tiny in their marketing. And I know Moss refers to him as the Tiny.
0: Well, Tiny is part of the model number because they have a regular size one as well that's about twice as thick.
2: Okay. I must have missed that. Okay. So I guess... Yeah.
0: The, the regular size one actually has a uh, CD-ROM drive on it.
2: Oh, okay. So I guess it actually the name would be then M700 Tiny Thinks or Think Center Tiny or however the nomenclature is but yeah i have right over here i still haven't uh put a drive in it yet but uh i spent the remainder of my time watching tv and trying not to uh fall asleep while doing it i uh doing better this week i haven't fallen asleep watching anything which is which is good because i don't like having to go back through my history and try to figure out where i went to sleep so with that disappointment
1: how about you eric I was like, I'm not the only one who falls asleep in the middle of a playlist, and then <laughs> <laughs> eight videos later, like, oh,
2: <laughs> oh my! Yeah, you have to go back and unwatch them.
1: <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Just don't fall asleep in the middle of a podcast. <laughs> exactly. Oh my! Well, I had uh, an interesting month. It was mostly all hardware this month. Uh, I've been meaning to replace the keyboard in my Dell XPS laptop. Certain keys have not been working well. I have to press hard to get certain ones to activate and it's usually the same ones so it was a bit of a game. I knew which ones worked and which ones didn't but uh, it made typing, you know, difficult especially because some of my passwords had those keys in it (laughs) and so I was never sure if I was typing the password wrong or if the key wasn't activating so... Bit of a hit or miss thing. Uh, I had purchased a replacement keyboard months ago with the intention of replacing it right away. But then I looked at the teardown video and realized, oh, this is really involved in literally you're taking the entire system apart, uh, unseating all of the, you know, the the cooling, <laughs> you're basically literally tearing it down. And um, I have had a few instances where that didn't go as well as I would have hoped Um Eric, yeah, you should have done what I
0: did. What's that? Get Dale to take a vacation and he comes down. <laughs> <to sit> down.
1: <laughs> Sorry, Dale. <laughs> well, you know, fortunately, I do have to say that, and maybe this isn't universally true, but I've been using Dell laptops for a number of years, and it always seems like they are fairly easy to work on, even if you do have to sort of get in a little deeper than just the normal user serviceable stuff like memory and disks and stuff like that. So, I went through the process of taking it all apart, uh, put it back together and, you know, cross your fingers and and everything was fine. The only thing that happened was one of the fans is making a little bit of a noise. It's really not like grinding or anything terrible, but it's enough that it's noticeable because it had been so quiet before. So, I'm going to try to maybe take it apart and clean it a little better. Um, But the outcome of that was I really like this laptop and I want to hold on to it for as long as I can. It has 16 gigabytes of RAM in it, but I often you know, run out of memory or come close to it because I'll have maybe a virtual machine going and then I've got a lot of sort of server type stuff running in the background for some of the web stuff I'm doing. And, um, you know, Firefox is taking up six or eight gigs (laughs) of memory. If you're lucky. Yeah, right.
2: I was using it yesterday. I had two browser windows open and I look at HTOP and I was up to like 16 gigs of RAM.
1: (laughs) Wow, man. So, you know, and it's just such a necessary evil because I use it for everything. So rather than fight it and uh, try to figure out ways around it, I figured, okay, Now that the keyboard's working again, which what a pleasure it is to type (laughs) on a keyboard that actually works. Um, So I thought, okay, I'll upgrade the RAM. It was only about $50 for a 32 gig kit. And I usually have good luck with Crucial, so I just went with them and nothing fancy. You know, it's not like a high-end gaming system. I just needed the capacity more than the performance. And that's been great. So, it's now has a new keyboard and upgraded memory. And if I can get the fan working so that it's quiet again, quieter, uh, then that'll be great. All stuff I've been meaning to do for such a long time, like the keyboard literally for months. <laughs> you know, It's like, I'm going to do that tomorrow and just never quite got to it. So, it's all behind me now and I'm, I'm just happier for it. But speaking of laptops, another thing that I was working on this month was a laptop that was given to me by a family member that was uh, running Windows 10 that wouldn't boot anymore. They had taken it to a certain big box store uh, tech support team. (laughs) Maybe I'm trying to think of a a replacement word, but uh, I think you probably know who I mean, uh, blue and yellow. But they didn't have any luck with it, which is hard to believe. Um, And so I booted a live session of Linux. And of course, all the data is still on the disk. It was just an issue with Windows not booting. So I asked the family member, do you want me to fix Windows so that it boots again? And they really, it's an older computer to them and they just wanted to get something new. So uh, they just want the data, which leaves me now with this really pretty nice system. It's a Dell Inspiron 5759, has an Intel Skylake 6th Generation i7-6500U. It's a dual core with four threads. 16 gigs of DDR3 uh, RAM at 1600 megahertz and a one terabyte 5400 RPM SATA 3 drive. So, the the drive obviously was going to be the biggest uh, factor, like bottlenecks slow down on the system. So, I ordered a new SSD and I'm going to give this computer to my daughter. And so, I thought this is a good way for her to learn about the internals of a computer. I had her do help me with the memory upgrade on my laptop. She actually did the entire drive replacement in the Inspiron. And again, credit to Dell, all you have to do is take out four screws on the bottom and there's a plastic cover that just pops right off. And in there is the disc, the memory modules. And on this one, it even has the CMOS battery, (laughs) which I thought was pretty interesting that they would, uh, I guess think that you're going to hold on to it long enough that that battery would die, or I guess if it, if it would die, that it would just make it easier to service. So, uh, so anyway, that was great. She got a chance to do that, get hands on. I don't know many other 11-year-olds that know how to replace a hard drive. So that's kind of neat and gives her a little bit of confidence. I think a lot of stuff in tech support is really just about having the confidence um, to, to actually take it apart and, and do it. So, so that was great. And we got to spend time together. The next thing is installing an operating system, and she's been using uh, Ubuntu for three or four years now, so she's familiar with that, but I may switch her to something like Mint, not entirely sure yet. So we'll, that'll be in uh, episodes in the future. We'll, I can go, come back and, and talk about that. But yeah, lots of fun with Dell laptops this month.
0: Okay, moving into updates, where we discuss what we've learned about distros we've already reviewed., uh, Bodhi seven is now out in beta. Bode six thirty two bit is still stuck in beta, but they're moving what they've made. Of Bode 632 bit to Bode 7 32-bit, with all the new stuff they've added to Bode 7, after the 64-bit gets to official status, they'll get back to work on the 32-bit. The 32-bit is based on Debian, whereas the 64-bit is based on Ubuntu Core. Dale?
2: The Solus Project is moving closer to the release of 4.4, a much-needed refresh to their current 4.x ISO. Refreshed AppStream Metadata Screenshots for the software center the firewall d stack has been overhauled thanks to Evan or evan however you want to pronounce that hardware enablement for light sensors and accelerators i think a lot of the new laptops are coming out with stuff like that for people dropping them and uh, in other instances updated to kernel 6.3.4 secure boot support And I have a link in the show notes that describes more of that in detail. The NVIDIA 390 driver has been deprecated as it was end of life on the beginning of 2023. And users of 390 will be automatically switched to the Nouveau drivers, which I think is really nice because I think that uh, it would have left a lot of people hanging. Void Linux has now dropped the long deprecated Pipewire dash media dash session manager from its pipe package bringing it in line with the upstream default configuration and i have a link in the show notes here the debian project is getting closer to debian 12 bookworm release date of the 10th of june 2023 i haven't heard of any delays so it's should be uh, coming up here soon the 24th of may was the beginning of the hard freeze which only critical bugs are fixed. Any other updates to packages require an unblock request and a very good reason for it. Usually it's this like critical stuff. Unless there are any major changes, here are some of the updates in Bookworm. Plasma 5.27, Noma 43.3, Cinnamon 5.6, XFC 4.18, with kernel 6.1. That's going to be great for a lot of people with uh Some mid-range hardware from within the past four or five years, especially if you have a Ryzen processor. This will be the first official release of non-free firmware in the official ISO, which is going to be amazing. Uh, I think that's really going to uh, to help a lot of the uh, uh, distros that are based on it too, especially like uh, MX and etc. Zero Linux updates have been slowed down due to many issues in his country. It's in Lebanon. Many hours per day without power, prices that keep what power they have has increased more so than any other countries in Europe. If you are able to donate, a link will be in the show notes to his Ko-Fi or coffee page. And I have the link in the show notes here for that. And uh, Steve's a real great guy. I've been listening to their, his podcast and the Linuxcast podcast. So if you can, and if not, everybody understands. Partis Linux has many visual and functional improvements. It has been my favorite Debian-based distro, and I have a link to their changelog. And how about you, Eric?
1: Well, I've only reviewed one distro so far, which was version 37 of the KDE Spin of Fedora. So that's, <laughs> that's the only one I can really speak to. Uh, I made an honest effort of trying to find any release notes and had no luck because they just had updated to 38 uh, literally days prior to us recording that episode. I saw a few posts from other people looking for them and having equally poor luck, and so I guess there is not a official spins release notes. Uh, I mean, the only thing that I could find was maybe the uh, you know the bug tracker or something like that. Maybe being able to sort of you know find the tags for the release. I mean, it was nothing official or easy to find. So if by any chance anyone associated with the Fedora spins listens to this. I humbly request that you consider publishing release notes or failing that at least just to sort of dump a list of changes uh, from the tracking system so that we can see what changed. Okay,
0: let's move on to beautiful failures. What we tried and failed to install or run this month. I tried once again to have a positive review of BlendOS, version 2 is out and has many improvements. I tried the Plasma Edition and everything was quite nice, except for disappearing menus. Every time I clicked on a menu, the sub-menu went blank. This made it difficult to open things or move them to the taskbar. After a week, I decided to try the GNOME version, which Rudra told me was completely stable. It might be, but I could not manage to get the extra repos to set up. You're supposed to be able to use virtually any repo with several main suggestions, and I couldn't get any of them to work. I installed Plasma again, and that time I couldn't even get to a desktop. Rudra tells me a new ISO should be out, probably before this show. I haven't seen announcement of it, but it should have been days ago from what he said. Anyhow, I then tried a few more things, settling on Farron OS. It installed beautifully, looked great, updated great, and then my trackball's right button was found to not be working. Fortunately, it turned out the problem was in my trackball, not in Farron OS. Hence, Farron is not a failure and will be my review this month. Dale?
2: I want to preface this because it's more of a failure on me and not on this distro. (laughs) So my failure so far anyway is with the base ISO of Void Linux, because as I previously mentioned, you pretty much boot to a terminal. And you log in, there's no GUI or hardly any packages. The main issue was getting Dbus to connect to the session that XORG creates upon executing. I kept getting failed to connect or session not found, etc. I chose the base install because I wanted to have more control over which packages are installed. In some cases, you can't help but install some packages because of dependency requirements. Everything was going well up until I was trying to add Dbus to my OpenBox XORG combination. While away at work, I did find some information on Dbus in the Gentoo documentation and their forms. And let me see, trying to find documentation on that is not very easy or I'm just not looking in the right places. I left them open in Firefox on my phone along with about 40 other tabs. The reason I have so many tabs is when I stop for lunch or other idle times, I will search for something and leave the tabs open or, you know, read previously opened ones. This is why I like tab syncing. For example, I can have my tablet open and open the same tab on my phone or one that's on my laptop. During my week off work, I hope I can use this information from 2 to get DBus working. If not, I will continue with the Void XFCE ISO installation on my desktop. It already had dbus working. I just swapped the XFWM4 for OpenBox's OpenBox-Session. My friend gave up on the base ISO due to uh, similar issues. It was easier for him to just use what was already configured by the Void maintainers. He suggested I do the same. And I was going down that path. I was intrigued when I found information from Gentoo, so I'm going to give that one last try. My other fear is finding something else that isn't working, requiring a lot of uh, configuration and research. You know, this comes down to the sunk cost analysis. Do I keep using it because I've spent a month working on it, or should I just bulk that up as a learning experience? (laughs) (laughs) So, let's move on to what uh, Eric has to say.
1: So I did not have a failure this month. I'll be honest and say I focused a lot on the hardware side of things, uh, but so I didn't really have a software failure and I r- stuck with Kubuntu most of the month, which you'll hear in my review is pretty much rock solid, so it's uh, so I didn't have any issues there. Uh, but I will say that by the end of the month, I had switched to I had been wanting to try cinnamon and switched over to mint, so that's not. Ubuntu's fault necessarily, but darn you Mint, you're just so good. <laughs> I can't stay away. So that's it for me. Let's move on to the reviews.
0: Okay, this month I'm reviewing Farron OS. Farron is a quite usable distro forked from Mint some years back, then rebased on Ubuntu Core using a Plasma desktop. The distro uses some very sane settings on the desktop with a few quirks and throws in nearly all of the Mint tools. This is the closest thing you can find to Plasma on Mint. I've reviewed this a couple times previously, often in the middle of the dev working on something new. I think it's ready now my hardware. I used my Lenovo ThinkPad T540p. This computer has a 4th generation Intel Core i7-4710MQ, mq 16 gigs of RAM, and a 512GB Silicon Power SSD with both Intel HD Graphics 4600 and NVIDIA GeForce GT730M graphics. I installed it using the entire disk. Installation ease and issues. I'm gonna go through this this time. Uh, I started up uh, at 32 minutes past midnight, 032. Unreadable screen, it was sort of colors glitching all over. Within two minutes that cleared and in another minute the desktop was displayed. I removed my partitions and at 037 I started installing. Three minutes later it was done and I rebooted. After reboot is when you put in your username and password and set your time zone, etc., followed by another reboot at 043. I was then met with a desktop with a welcome app and had offered to give me a brief tour of the system. I attempted to install restricted codecs, but found that my wifi login was not transferred during installation. I logged into my network, tried again, the installation of restricted codecs finished at 046, and I finished the slideshow after that. I was then prompted to update the update program, which was clearly mint update. I started updates at 048 and then set my power settings, turned my touchpad off and finished the updates at 059 whereupon I once again rebooted. This time I booted to a blank screen with a blinking cursor. I rebooted again. At 102 I had a working system. Farron comes default with Vivaldi browser, but it also includes a very nice browser picker program I selected Firefox, and after that was installed, I uninstalled Vivaldi from the same app. It's a single-button push. It was easy as anything. I then opened Synaptic to clear LibreOffice and downloaded and installed SoftMaker FreeOffice. I then went to Flathub and downloaded the installation files for Discord, Telegram, PySolFC, and Audacity, installed those, and opened a terminal to install KMines, KMajong, and NetHack X11. I was done at 1.21 with the only things left to do being to log into Firefox, Discord, and Telegram. Not bad, 49 minutes to a complete system with my preferred defaults. Post-installation hardware facts and issues, as I said earlier, I thought there was a problem using my right mouse button, and then I found the issue was indeed with my trackball. Other than that, the choice of Vivaldi as the default browser is curious, but the Browser Picker app makes it easy to install the browser of your choice and remove any other browser. I heard sometime back the dev was working on an office picker based on this, but it isn't here in the latest version. Ease of use, if you like Plasma and you like Mint, you will very likely feel right at home in Farron. It's a very smooth system and everything works better than you might expect, especially with Mint update replacing Discover. Memory and disk use, 24 gigs of space was used. Uh, This is mostly because I installed so many flat packs. And at a clean boot, I was using 732 megabytes of memory, reported by Free-H. Ease of finding help. The dev maintains a lively Discord channel and can be reached any number of other ways as well. I did not need to look for help with anything. Everything felt like it was already exactly the way I wanted it. Again, other than changing my browser and my office package, I'm pretty much in tune with what the Farin dev wants. Plays nice with others. Farron coexists peacefully with any System-D distro. It is based on Ubuntu Core, so it should be happy with any Debian distro. I've run it before with Open Mandriva or Manjaro on the machine without any problems. This time I ran it as the only distro on my machine. Stability, it should be just as stable as Ubuntu. The Farron dev changes things when he finds something which does not quite meet his standards, but the current version has been stable for over a year. Similar distros to check out. Well, of course, you could try Linux Mint or Zorin OS or Kubuntu, since we're talking a Plasma desktop here, and KDE Neon. My ratings. I go through these too fast, it seems. Ease of installation. New user, 9 out of 10. Experience user, 10 out of 10. Hardware issues, 10 out of 10. Ease of finding help, 9 out of 10. Ease of use, 10 out of 10. Plays nice with others, 9 out of 10. Stability, 10 out of 10. My overall rating is 9.5 out of 10. One of these days, I'm going to proclaim that Farron OS is the perfect distribution, especially for people who like Plasma and Mint, or are just coming over for another OS. It looks and feels familiar, it has some gorgeous theming and included wallpapers, and it works pretty well. As I said above, there were a couple of glitchy moments, but they were easily gotten through without the need for much patience. That's it for me. What do you have for us this month, Dale?
2: Well, I am doing an arch-based distro called Archcraft, and it is from India. It was created and maintained by Adya Shakyah.
0: Aditya Shakya.
2: Aditya Shakya. Aditya Shakya. Okay. Thank you, Moss. I couldn't find any officially stated release date. The earliest I could find on their SourceForge page was July of 2020. The description of the distro is, quote, yet another minimal Linux distro based on Arch Linux, end quote. The official ISO uses the OpenBox Window Manager with two flavor ISOs using XFCE and LXDE. There are additional window managers in the OpenBox ISO. Which is BSPWM, which is available during the open box installation. In addition to that one, you can after the install, you can install DWM, i3WM, XModad, Herbsluft, Berry, and Fluxbox. They offer additional premium ISOs using Wayland, WayFire and other customized ISOs available from Kofi or Kofi. Additionally, they offer a paid service to create a custom Linux distro, if you're interested. And I'm assuming that would come with all the customizations and etc. Whatever you want. My hardware. Well, since I resurrected my Dell, I thought I'd give it a little workout. So I'm using my Inspiron 137353. It has a dual-core i5-6200U, 2.8 gigahertz. 13-inch display using HD Graphics 520, 8 gigabytes of RAM, and 128 gigabyte Samsung cm 871 SSD. So it's pretty comparable to my ThinkPad T460. Installation ease and issues. The grub menu of the installation ISO has the following options. Boot, boot open source, boot NVIDIA, boot no mode set. UEFI shell and firmware settings system shutdown, and system restart. I'm assuming the open source option is referring to the in-kernel tree graphics drivers like Nouveau. Once in the live session, I was greeted with a hello application. It had links to Get Started, Launch Calimeras, and Launch ABIF. ABIF is their command line, terminal base, and curses based installer. I don't know what the initials stand for. I looked and I have no idea. ABIF is a long detailed installation. Think of it as a graphical text-based Arch install. If you select it, this is what you will encounter. I selected English as my language. The following screen showed the menu of five steps. One. Prepare installation, two, install base, three, configure base, four, review configuration files, and five, done, and rejoice. Instructions above the menu stated that these steps must be completed in order. <laughs> yes, it kind of makes sense. You don't want to do them out of order, of course. Well, I'm not going to go there. The first step was already selected, so I pressed enter. It showed eight more steps. One, set virtual console. Two, set desktop keyboard layout. Three, list devices, which is optional. Four, partition the disk. Five, lux encryption, which is again optional. Six, logical volume management, which is LVM, is optional. Seven, mount partitions. Eight, you go back to the beginning. Step one has various consoles listed, which I had no clue what some of them were. I'm just being honest. (laughs) I'm like alphabet soup. I saw an EN listed before ES, which I assume is English and Espanol. I scrolled to the end and saw the US and for no reason I selected it. I was going to choose the EN, but I was already down there and I selected it. So I guess that was my reason. (laughs) I selected it. It automatically returned me to the menu with step two already selected, which is good because I think of all these steps, a person's gonna get confused. Pressing enter displayed a list of two-letter combinations. I didn't see the EN option, so I chose US once again. Step three, list devices. Shows the uh, drives available, which is a nice uh, thing there, because sometimes you don't look before you start an installation and then you wonder what you have. Continuing to step four, which was partitioning the drive, there were options to securely wipe the drive, automatic partitioning, GParted, CF Disk. It's one of my favorites, and Parted. I selected cfdisk because it's an easy-to-use and curses-based menu-driven uh, partitioner. Not sure if any of uh, anyone else has used it, but I really like it. It's uh, very quick, maybe just because I'm used to it. I resized SDA2, which is the root partition of Debian stable. I did a somewhat equal split of 58 gigabytes. That created an SDA4 as SDA3 was the swap partition created by the Debian install. For information, you can use the same swap partition between distros. That will make your uh, partition list a lot easier and you don't have swap files taking up space on, you know, redundantly on your other distros. Only exception to that is if you have a distro that uses encryption like Pop!OS, then you have no choice but to use another one. anyways, I wrote the changes and then selected quit to return to the list of steps. Upon returning to the installation steps, a warning message informed me that I needed to select the correct drive by device name. There are no descriptions of what is on each device. After acknowledging that, I chose the file system I wanted to use, which was uh, ext4. It verified that I wanted ext4, and after I accepted it, it formatted the partition. The following list of options in the fs tab, or fstab options, I only chose the discard, and that to enable the trim. I was again asked to confirm my selections. In the following screen, I selected the swap partition, the partition the previous Debian installation created. The other options were none and a swap file. Following that was the UEFI partition selection, which wasn't hard since it's the smallest one. A warning message informed me that the partition was previously formatted, which I already knew since Debian created it. I opted not to format it. My next task was to select a mount point for the UEFI. The choice of slash boot and slash boot EFI was given. I opted for the boot slash EFI since most non-Arch distros use that. Considering I am dual booting with Debian and it uses slash boot slash EFI. Once completed, I was asked if I wanted to mount any other partitions. I selected done and it was brought back to the main menu list. Back was already chosen, so I pressed enter. The next step was to install the base. Once that was done, I proceeded with the run, make init CPIO step, which creates the init RAM FS. Following that step, I continued to install the bootloader. The choice was grub or systemd boot. I chose grub. It asked if I wanted to make it the default. I chose not since I'm already using the Debian installed one. Next on to the configure base steps. I pressed enter to generate the FSTab. The options were to use device name, device label, device UUID, and UEFI part UUID. I chose device UUID. The following steps were setting the host name, locale, time zone, root password, and adding the uh, user account. I was given the option to review the configuration files that were generated. Finally, I was brought back to the main menu and selected done. I was asked if I wanted to exit the installer and press enter, then I rebooted the, uh, the laptop. It rebooted to a grub prompt, which is no big surprise as Arch usually doesn't like dual booting in my experience. I entered the Dell UEFI and added Arch's UEFI boot stub to the boot menu, then placed it ahead of Debian in the boot order. Upon reboot, I was able to log into Archcraft with no signs of Debian anywhere in the Grub menu. I went through the terminal-based installation again, this time choosing to have Archcraft control Grub. Again, it was the only boot option listed in Grub. I booted to a live USB to attempt to install grub in debian i kept getting quote slash dev slash sda is an invalid block device end quote i have no idea what the archcraft bootloader did to cause that i don't know if anyone else has ever experienced that have either one of you
0: i have not i've run into a lot of grub problems i'm not sure if i've run into this particular one
2: Yeah, because it was odd. I mean, it completely just garbled it where I went into a whole nother ISO for... I can't remember what stick I had. I can't remember. But yeah, three different partitioners had... I have no idea what this is. So that was really weird. It's getting to the point where I will need to dig into why Arch doesn't dual boot, even though Grub and OS Prober
0: are being used. In my experience, if you let Arch control... On the first install, you should be able to get all your other distros to show up. But if you then hand the control to anyone else, Arch doesn't show up and you have to basically hit your escape or F12 or whatever while you're booting to get to Arch.
2: Yeah, I left that out of, the, uh, out of my notes here because I didn't want to get go too long with them. But yeah, I had to do that a couple of times with my Dell where I actually had to go. I think Dell's, I think, is F12. And yeah, it's weird. To test the dual boot, I installed Partis Linux, Debian based distro. I was going to put Debian stable back on, but I kind of prefer Partis because the way it looks good out of the box. And the only ISO of stable I had was the net install, which is not good over a mobile data connection. I rebooted using the Archcraft ISO and selected the Calamaris installer method which is much quicker and easier. The power must be attached to the laptop, but the Wi-Fi doesn't need to be connected. The normal questions of location and keyboard language were posed. The next screen was labeled Desktop. The options were OpenBox, BSPWM, or both. OpenBox is a floating slash stacking window manager. It's uh, typically what you'd see in uh, the most of the desktop environments and bspwm is a tiling window manager so i chose openbox next was the partitioning i selected the install alongside option following that was the setting of the host name and a user account creation the use the same password as the administrator account was already checked continuing i was shown a summary of my choices i clicked install to begin the installation it is a slower than normal installation due to copying and uncompressing the image. Once completed and all done was shown, a checkbox to restart now was available. There was no prompt to uh, remove the USB stick. Upon reboot, ArchCraft was in control of Grub, and Partus Linux was one of the additional boot options. Post-installation hardware facts and issues. Well, I know some people... Like to hear about the wallpaper, so that's why I include that in here. The wallpaper is of snow capped mountains in black and white. There are other scenery selections along with some unique shapes and colors. There is a top status bar, which is Polybar, a favorite among window manager users. From left to right, there is Rofi, a window switcher application launcher, an app that to select one of your four desktops and a resource meter displaying CPU memory disk usage. Clicking on the memory usage opens HTOP, command line resources utility using NCurses framework. When clicking on the clock, it expands the date using standard U.S. convention of month, day, and year, which I thought was kind of interesting. I'm not sure what is common in India, but normally you see it in the European of the uh, least significant to the most significant. The music player daemon, or MPD, is to the right of the clock. The volume control slider is a single click to mute and unmute. Display brightness. Connection manager applet showing the current network connection. The battery status for when you're using a laptop. And the last item is the power applet for logout, shutdown, and restart, etc. A little side note about that power applet. I noticed some, I'm not sure if it's an update on the on the applets, but I noticed some of the distros are actually showing the battery status of like USB mice and like Bluetooth mice. So you may want to enable it on some of yours even if you're using a desktop. I did that on mine here on my desktop and I found out it shows me my battery status on my trackball, I thought that was cool. At the bottom of the screen is a dock using Plank. It is populated with Alacrity, a terminal emulator, Firefox version 1.13, Thunar file Manager 4.18.6, Genie 1.38, a text editor, XFC Terminal Emulator, which is part of the uh, 4.18 suite of uh, applications from uh, XFCE, and the Settings Manager from XFCE. And lastly, Help and Tips. It is the Hello application for ArchCraft. It provides details about Openbox, BSPWM, and tips, community links, and the premium editions. There is also a list of pre configured key bindings used in Openbox. And if you install the BSPWM, they have the same for it. As far as installed applications, Archcraft is minimal. They are using Nitrogen to manage the wallpaper. It is another favorite among window manager users. In addition to Alacrity, there is also the XFCE terminal. Vim and Nano are the two terminal based text editors. For terminal based file management, you have Ranger. If you are familiar with the old Norton Commander or Midnight Commander, a Linux clone, it is very similar. Avahi is a uh, network services. Chiparted is a graphical partitioning utility. And Kvantum is a theme manager are among the few applications installed. OpenBox Configuration Manager is installed if you don't like to edit the configuration in in a text editor. And Pacman is used for package management, so get used to typing pacman-syuu, as there isn't a GUI package manager. Parallel downloads are enabled, which makes downloading much faster. Access to the AUR, which is the Arch user repository, Is available in Yay. Flatpak and Snap are not installed by default. Installing Flatpak will be a bit unclear to some people. There are six options, all beginning with xdg desktop. The reason for that is that Flatpak was originally called xdg app. The six options are portal gnome portal-gtk, portal-hyperland, portal-kde, portal-lxqt, and portal-wrl. I selected the GTK option since OpenBox aligns more with that than KDE. One thing about installing Flatpak with Archcraft, FlatHub is already enabled. After installing a package, you'll need to log out and log back in for the application to appear in Rofi. Snap wasn't found when searching with Pac-Man, so you will need to install that using yay. I installed it, which took quite a while. After rebooting, I found it couldn't contact the server. I don't know if it wasn't configured or if it was another issue. I'm not a fan of Snap, so I didn't go any further. With access to the AUR and Flatpak, I think your application needs are being met. Though I would stick with flat packs, the AUR is just one update away from breaking. Yes, I know many people don't have a problem. When there is a problem, can you fix it? That is my main concern with it. So I'm not necessarily, as the kids would say, throwing shade on it. Ease of use. Given my bias towards open box, I got along with the Artscraft's implementation quite well. It is functional using some common key bindings, which can be edited if you prefer others. I did find their power management applet to be a little quirky. I would click on the icon from the panel and it would open. I then would click one of the uh, options, usually the power off, and instead of powering off, it would disappear. I found out that I had to click on the icon in the panel and then use the error keys to select power followed by pressing the enter key, and it worked fine then. Doing my updates in the terminal is normal activity for me. Believe it or not, I'm actually getting used to using Pac-Man. It only took me, what, almost a decade to get used to the stupid thing. <laughs> the dash capital YUU is still a bit obscure to me, though with my current use of Void Linux, which uses XBPPS. It uses similar switches where XBPS install capital S lowercase U is used to update the system while XBPS query then hyphen capital R lowercase S is used to search for packages. So who am I to complain about Pacman's dash capital S lowercase YUU to update the system? I guess if you look at XBPS query space, you know, dash capital R lowercase s is complicated, but for some reason in my brain it isn't. So I see where the Arch people are coming from now. So moving along, the act of tapping the super key to open Rofi to launch applications is really all I need. If an application is not found, open the terminal and type the name followed by the ampersand the uh, ampersand detaches or forks the application from that specific terminal window, allowing you to close it and your application will stay running because if you try to launch something from the terminal and you close that terminal window, you just killed your application. So if you tell it to fork, you can close your uh, terminal window. One workflow that I no longer use anymore is navigating a menu. If you're into that workflow, you can use OpenBox's right-click menu. On an empty part of the wallpaper, right-click and you will be presented with a menu tree of applications. You can even shut down, reboot, log out, etc., using this menu. Which, oddly enough, I forgot about when I was having issues with the aforementioned power management applet.
0: Yeah, in Bodhi, they have the opposite where you left-click, because everyone left-clicks first of hand. <laughs>
2: hmm, that's fascinating.
0: That's just the way enlightenment has it.
2: Yeah, so like I heard, Plasma is going to double-click by default now. I'm not sure if that's going to be in Plasma 6 or if it's something they're doing now, but yeah. Back when I was using this workflow, I found it very cool that I could open the menu anywhere on the screen. This was compared to the current version of Windows back then. I think I was using Windows 98 or maybe Windows 2000 Workstation. The Start menu was a fixed menu on the bottom left side of the panel well, pretty much where it is today on Windows 11 except in the middle now. Maybe if I start using OpenBox's right-click menu again, I might get back into that habit. And uh, if you use XFCE, you can do the same thing. Memory and Disk Use. Seven gigabytes of space is used on the SSD and 391 megabytes of memory used reported by Free-HM. And a quick note, I heard in some other podcasts saying that it's kind of meaningless to mention these numbers because as soon as you open a web browser, you're already using 7 or 8 gigs. The reason why we do it is because if you're using a memory-constrained computer, the less memory it boots up with, the more memory you have left over. And a person is going to know that if you've got 4 gigs of RAM, You're not going to run two browsers with 17 tabs open.
0: And Firefox with four tabs open uses a lot less memory than Firefox with 40 tabs open. (laughs) Yes. So that's why we
2: mentioned this is because it also shows the efficiency of these different options. And if you do it long enough, you get to know where bloat came in or something changed.
0: Most window managers are extremely light like this one is 391 megabytes. I know I only have like 411 megabytes on Bodhi, even though it looks like it's using a desktop. It's actually a window manager that looks like a desktop. I think the Enlightenment was called the original Eye Candy window manager.
2: Yeah, it it was. That's pretty much how uh, XFC evolved, because XFC was a window had a window manager, and they just built applications to supplement features that were found in you know desktop environments, which it became a pseudo desktop environment so ease of finding help they have a wiki and the following platforms reddit discord telegram and matrix spaces their wiki is pretty useful there are some fixes for potential uh, post installation issues if you choose to use one of the window managers there is a list of all the configured key bindings I noticed they use some of the same key bindings that I commonly use, which is which is always nice, you know, habits are hard to break when you're used to doing certain keystrokes. Plays nice with others. Yes, if you use the install alongside option in Calamaris, using the command line and curses installer your luck may vary. And as Moss has previously mentioned, if you let Arch do all the work. You uh, have a better chance of it of it working, and I have had in the past, but it's still just annoying. The uh, stability, well, haven't had any. I waited a couple weeks between updates just to see how it did on the updates, and it had no issues, though there were just, you know three or four times as many. Though I did not use any AUR packages except for installing snap, which didn't work for whatever reason. Similar distros to check out. Mabox, which is Manjaro-based. Arco, which is Arch-based. Bunsen Labs Linux, which is Debian-based. You have CrunchBang++, which is Debian-based. PC Linux OS, which is its own standalone, but it was originally uh, based on Mandriva, which was based on Mandrake, (laughs) which was based on Red Hat, which if you want to go back far enough. (laughs) And then you have Slackle, Openbox, which Slackle is uh, based on Slackware. My ratings. The ease of installation for a new user, 8 out of 10. Using the terminal install, I'm just going to be honest. It's 1 out of 10. Experienced user, 10 out of 10. Using the terminal install, yeah, probably 8 out of 10. Hardware issues, 10 out of 10. Ease of finding help, community, and web, I'd say 10 out of 10. Ease of use, 9 out of 10. I just took a point off just because their shutdown widget didn't want to disappear every time you clicked on it without doing anything. Plays nice with others, 8 out of 10. I just put, out of my frustration, 0 out of 10 using the terminal install. I think if I really wanted to be fair, I would at at least be middle of the road of five because it does work. I just got frustrated how many times I reinstalled it. What I just read to you is only one time. And I did that three or four times. <laughs> so you can see how that could be frustrating. And my overall rating is 8 out of 10. Final comments. Well, I will try not to repeat what I said in the ease of use too much. Overall, this has been a good Arch experience. OpenBox is quite a configurable window manager. The way it is configured in Archcraft offers a little bit to everyone's workflow. If you don't mind using the terminal for package management, I think you will find not much of a difference using that compared to the commonly used desktop environments of today. Longer-term use of the distro will be needed to see how closely they follow upstream arch. I noticed they had quite a few updates each week. I don't think there was a day where I didn't have updates. The important point is that it was reliable in the few weeks that I had used it. Now we move on to Eric.
1: This month, as I mentioned uh, earlier on, I focused on Kubuntu 2304. And as an introduction, I've been a Kubuntu user off and on for many, many, many years most recently prior to switching to GNOME several years ago. It was my dependable daily driver, the one that didn't change much between releases and was really focused on providing a clean, stock KDE Plasma desktop experience. Also, even though Kubuntu is a fixed-release distro, they have provided up-to-date versions of Plasma over the years by way of a backports PPA. And that's actually a very interesting Situation that I've not really experienced with other distributions uh, where, even though, as I mentioned, it's a fixed release, any updates that are happening in the desktop environment, in this case, Plasma, are being backported so that you can then enjoy them on your current release without having to wait. You know, it happens sometimes that a release comes out of a distro based on their schedule, and then a month later, maybe days later, a version of that desktop environment, a new version gets released and you feel as though, oh no, (laughs) I would have liked to have used it, but now I have to wait until the next point release and probably experience the same type of thing over again. So the fact that Kubuntu has done this reliably, and it's not, I don't believe it's the actual Kubuntu team. I believe it's someone that's closely Aligned with that team. Um, I could be mistaken there, but it's always worked flawlessly. So I've never had any issues in using the Backports PPA. I really hadn't paid any attention to Kubuntu since switching to GNOME, and that, that was m- several years. So we went through many iterations of Kubuntu, and so I was very curious to see how it had changed. This was also after having used the KDE plasma spin of Fedora 37, which I reviewed in the last episode. So I was already familiar once again after having not having used plasma for a few years. So it was really more about how different is Kubuntu compared to Fedora. My hardware for this, I was using the main system that I mentioned earlier on, which is the Dell XPS 159570 laptop. Has the 8th gen coffee lake intel i7 8750h which is six cores 12 threads at 4.1 gigahertz i've just upgraded the memory to 32 gigabytes and that's ddr4 2666 i have a toshiba 256 gigabyte nvme and a crucial one terabyte ssd drive the ssd is the data drive and the 256 nvme is the boot drive And it has hybrid graphics uh, by way of NVIDIA GeForce GTX 1050 Ti mobile and Intel Coffee Lake HGT2 UHD graphics 630. So as I mentioned, because I've now fixed the keyboard and the memory upgrade, I hopefully will have this system for quite a while longer because it really does run quite smoothly. So for installation ease and issues, Kubuntu's version of the Ubiquiti installer is very familiar at this point. There really are no surprises. They've been using it for quite a while. And even though I chose the normal installation option, I really enjoy the fact that they offer a minimal version. And I have used it many times over the years. And if you're not familiar, essentially it does a full installation, a normal installation, and then it comes back and, and uninstalls a bunch of stuff. Office, you know, LibreOffice and some of the other default applications that would have normally been present. So it it leaves you with a very lean system, which is really just Plasma and a a few helper applications, essentially. I don't use it all the time, but it was nice to have that option and I did use it uh, over the years. So kudos to them for continuing to support that. Selecting the correct partitions was not difficult. I overwrote a Fedora partition for root and reused the EFI partition. It formatted the new root partition as EXT4, which, funny enough, at this point seems to be becoming less common, at least from what I've been doing with distro hopping recently. It seems like a lot of the things I've been testing out have been using ButterFS, um, so <laughs> it was interesting to see, oh no, it's, it's actually still using EXT4. It took around 10 minutes to finish, which is the you know standard install time for most distros on that laptop, so nothing faster or slower than average. After it was done, it had asked me to either restart or continue testing. And I selected to restart and everything booted normally, including having had recognized that there was another distro present and adding it to the boot menu as you'd hope. (laughs) Post-installation hardware facts and issues because Kubuntu is essentially just Ubuntu with Plasma and Ubuntu runs so well in my system. I didn't have any hardware issues. One of the reasons I appreciate Ubuntu and its derivatives, at least for the hardware aspect, uh, I've always used the same hardware in the last five years or so. When I got this laptop, because of the NVIDIA hybrid graphics, I actually had a lot of difficulty running different distributions, you know, Fedora and Arch, and you could run them, but it took a lot of effort to get those hybrid graphics working correctly, whereas Ubuntu just got it right and it would just work the way it was supposed to. NVIDIA drivers have gotten better just as a matter of course over the last several years. So as is sometimes the case with running Linux on newer hardware, you will be sometimes ahead of maybe the state of the art in Linux in terms of which drivers are available in the kernel or which hardware is supported And I think because this was a fairly new system when I got it, it was only about a year past its release when I first got it, it gets a little easier to run some of these things as time goes on. So, and that's been evident with hybrid graphics and NVIDIA. So according to Discover, there were 76 updates totaling nearly 470 megabytes in size. I ran the updates and then set about installing software. Some of it was available in the Ubuntu repositories, but I use a lot of Flatpaks, so I needed to configure this first, since it isn't configured by default. I'm not really gonna get into that decision that Canonical made, but suffice to say, it's not that difficult. Really, you just follow the instructions on flathub.org and you know, log out, log back in, and you're all set. I spent about an hour or so installing software and configuring the system, after which I was satisfied to have a more or less complete working system, no errors or difficulties with any of this, and I use the combination of Discover and app and Flatpak commands to install everything. Discover, despite many years of you know being worked on and refinements, still just feels a little clunky to me, and I tend not to use it. And this isn't like <laughs> an accusation or anything like that. I just, personal preference for me, I just feel more comfortable seeing all the output of what's happening with the package manager using apps and flat pack and stuff like that it's just better for me <laughs> so uh the one advantage though that something like discover uh or gnome software um you know mint software any of these systems is they incorporate packages from all of the different repositories and also sources so if you have snaps and flat packs and you've got the distros uh repositories when you search for something You get a result that is going to show you all of these different options versus if I searched with apt, searched with Flatpak, I'm going to get the results for just that package manager. So that is still a very convenient way. And sometimes I will just open up Discover or one of the software centers and search just to see what my options are.
2: Eric, did you experience the, I don't know how you would explain it, the indexing bug of Discover where you search for something? And you find your search result like on the fourth or fifth page.
1: I have had, and that's one of the things that the difficulties that I've had with Discover. I've just had, in general, some oddities, performance issues to the point where I don't necessarily trust the results I'm getting. And I've never had it like break anything or you know fail to do something. It's just the feedback that I get that little bar. The progress meter and not really getting the being able to see, and that and I th- maybe that just speaks to who I am and how I use Linux or you know, and expect to be able to see that kind of output. I think a lot of people just are happy to see the because Discover shows you how much data is left to download, right? The size remaining it doesn't really give you a lot of detail past that, but yeah, to your to answer, your question, I have had that where it's. It's not where you thought it was going to be, so.
0: Let me state that we almost reviewed the same distro, except that the one I reviewed fixed all these issues you're having problems with.
1: <laughs> you you might that. want to try Farron. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a that's a positive check uh, pro for Farron, right? <laughs> yeah, the
2: only other thing I was going to mention is the other one is the odd infinite status spinning thing that tells you it's still searching, because I've used it in the past where it stopped. There was no more listings popping up. It's already static. It's wanting you to make your choice. And then you look and it's still sitting there spinning saying, yep, still looking, still looking, still looking. And I'm like, you're done.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Didn't quite get the message that it's done yet. Yeah. Yeah. I, again i mean i i really don't want to make it sound like i'm i'm picking on discover cuz it's it's a very complicated application i get it um it has improved considerably over where it had been even just like a year or so ago but yeah i just not quite again to be fair not just discover i really don't love software managers in general they they serve their purpose me either <laughs> i mean they're great for people I already have a good idea of what software is out there, what I need. The one thing, I guess, that is another factor, so you have all of the different sources that you can find the software from, also discoverability. So, if you go to Discover or any of the software managers and it is showing you software that maybe you haven't seen before, that's interesting. You know, you kind of see, oh, well, never heard of that. What's that? And you kind of click. So- that's an interesting use of that, you know, promoting things that maybe people don't know. Or I like how like flathub.org has, you know, different categories of what's popular, what's new, what's, you know, updated, that kind of stuff. So yeah, discoverability is is another factor. I think that there's value. So uh, ease of use. I find the Kubuntu, you know, is just very easy to use. It's kind of like the, the war, the broken in gloves or the, you know, that tool that you can count on, it's just, uh, it's been a consistent thing that I've been able to rely on for a very long time. Uh, if you choose the standard installation, there's a modest but effective collection of software that's installed by default, and it's sort of one of each thing. There's an office suite, there's, you know, a tool to do this, a tool to that. And so it's really sort of checks off all the boxes of required software. It's easy to find just about anything you need between the standard repos, snaps, and as I mentioned, optionally, flat packs. Canonical did just make a decision, like I sort of mentioned, not to enable flat pack by default. It's really not difficult. So in terms of ease of use, you could kind of give it a ding because you have to go through that extra step. But again, not really that difficult. Maybe that's more difficult for someone who's new, who doesn't know to follow those instructions. Who's maybe confused you know why uh, I've heard about this flat pack thing why can't I get flat packs so that might be might be a little knock on that, but you know for someone like me it's really not a very big barrier so KD plasma obviously provides copious configuration settings so most people will be able to customize the desktop to their heart's content and change any of the settings and so between plasma and Kubuntu, Ubuntu's base, uh, I think you'd have pretty much everything you'd need for a great system, especially as, like, as a starting point. For memory and disk use, it was 885 megabytes on boot, getting to the desktop, opening up a command prompt, and then running free-hm. And it used 12 gigabytes of disk space uh, on a fresh install without installing Anything except those 72 updates that I mentioned.
0: I would point out that by comparison, Farron used 732 megabytes on boot.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's impressive. No doubt. And Plasma in general has seen over the last several years of reduction. I'm pretty sure I remember them actually focusing on that. Like what can they trim out, what can they maybe stop from starting automatically, that kind of stuff. And Plasma is, for being such a capable, full-fat <laughs> distra- or a desktop environment, so to speak, is pretty lightweight, very very performant, so. Uh, and you can even probably get that down lower if you were to go in and turn off all of the shadows and effects and everything else, so. Ease of finding help, Kubuntu provides a combination of Ubuntu-specific resources, as well as a community-driven web forum, IRC channel, mailing list, and a number of social media services and sites. I haven't personally used any of these options, but it seems like they would have all of the bases covered and you'd be able to get a hold of them wherever you'd feel comfortable. Plays nice with others. I had no issues installing Kubuntu alongside another distro using Grub with EFI, and that's been the case for many, many years now. Stability uh, in these many years that I'm mentioning, I've Spent with uh, as a Kubuntu user. I honestly can't remember any stability issues, any crashes, any weird, you know, issues. I mean, there's always going to be some things with software, but I can't remember anything that was like directly Kubuntu. Similar distros to check out. Another Ubuntu based distro with KDE Plasma is their own KDE Neon. Uh, Rolling releases. Uh, Arch has a nice stock. Plasma experience. Manjaro has a very not-stock KDE Plasma experience, but is based on Arch, and OpenSUSE has Tumbleweed as a rolling option, and their KDE desktop is nice as well.
0: And again, I would add Farron and OpenMandriva.
1: Excellent. For ratings, ease of installation for a new user, I put 8 out of 10 simply because I think there are some things in uh, ubiquity that can be a little confusing to a new user, especially around partitioning. And unless you are just devoting the entire disk, I think they're, they're trying new things with an installer in the main desktop Ubuntu. And I think they're doing that to try to streamline it and make it a little easier. I think partitioning can be confusing. So it's an out of 10 for a new user, an experienced user, it's 10 out of 10. Hardware issues, none, so that's a 10 out of 10. Ease of finding help, as I just mentioned, it's a nine out of 10, simply because you still have to kind of dig a little bit for it. It doesn't have a welcome screen, so it doesn't like point you directly to help if you needed it, so I think that's a a bit of a knock for them. Ease of use, 10 out of 10. Plays nicely with others, 10 out of 10. Stability, 10 out of 10, for an overall rating of 9.5 out of 10. And to wrap up my final thoughts, I feel like Ubuntu is often overlooked as one of the more solid options for running a KDE Plasma system. It has all the benefits of the Ubuntu base and ecosystem with the advantage of running an alternative desktop to Ubuntu's main release. Much like Ubuntu, there are few surprises between releases, meaning that things don't change (laughs) as as much as they might in other distros. It might ultimately contribute to its apparent lack of popularity because it's seen as boring. I'm aware that it's not the most scientific measure of actual popularity, but it's only number 27 on DistroWatch's 12-month page hit ranking. Uh, Again, I know (laughs) I can hear people groaning already, but basically I don't have a better measure than that, and it is surprising for something as solid as Kubuntu to be sort of way down in in the rankings. I would expect it to be higher, like I said, but it's really not that important. Kubuntu's strength isn't in being flashy- but rather than one being a distro that has stood the test of time. It was first released in 2005 with the 5.04 series and has continued ever since, quietly providing a stable platform, I suspect mostly for busy people who need to get things done. They continue this tradition 18 years later with the 23.04 release. I've been using it off and on for about 15 of those 18 years, and I continue to be grateful to see each successive release And to know that, no matter what, I can always count on Kubuntu. Let's move on to new releases.
0: Okay, new releases this month from April 26th until today, June 2nd. We have Ganopix 23.5, Peropisis 2.1, Clonezilla 3.1.0-22, Arco Linux 23.05.04, Maybox 23.04, Photon 5.0, Debian 11.7.0, Debian Edu 11.7.0, EasyNAS 1.1.1, Artcraft 2023.05.01, Garuda 230501, Artix 20230501, Fuguita 7.3, Indian Firewall 3.3.23, Parrot 5.3, Q4OS 4.12, RaspiOS OS 2023-05-03, BROS 23.04, Arch 2023.05.03, Refracta 11.2, OSMC 2023.05-1, Partis 21.5, Robolinux 12.11, Manjaro 22.1.1. Alpine 3.18.0, Venom 20230509, Xtix 23.5, RHEL 9.2, Alma Linux 9.2, Euro Linux 9.2, KDE Neon 2023-0511, EasyOS 5.3, NewTix 23.05.0, Zero Linux 2023.05, Bodhi 7.0.0 beta, favoritism on my part, I don't usually list betas. Tails 5.13, Rocky 9.2, Archman twenty twenty three oh five one seven. 0517, Euro Linux 8.8, Alma Linux 8.8, Manjaro 22.1.2, Rocky 8.8, Springdale 9.2, Springdale 8.8, Linux FX 11.3.2, Regatta 23.0.5, Endless 5.0.4, Oracle 9.2 and Oracle 8.8, Reborn OS 2023.05.16, System Rescue 10.01, Athena 2023.06.01, OpenMamba 2023.05.29, CacheOS OS 23.05.29, Tuxedo 2-2023.05.30, Truenas 13.0-U5. Arco Linux 23.06.02, Armbian 23.5.1, NixOS 23.05, Smart OS 2023.06.01, KDE Neon 2023.06.01, Bluestar 6.3.5, and Athena 2023.06.03. Let's move on to feedback. Dale, you want to take this?
2: Yes. uh, Biku, one of our many listeners and a frequent uh, person in contact with us, contacted me on my uh, Telegram account. And he wrote, and this was in response to the um, issues I had with uh, Zinc, which was an XFCE spin of uh, Ubuntu's uh, 2204, if I'm remembering correctly. He writes... I have an install of Zubuntu Minimal, and its RAM usage is under 500 megabytes. and I haven't experienced the whisker menu delay you mentioned in the podcast, so it must be a Zinc-specific issue. By the way, excellent review as always. I'm almost tired of repeating my praises episode after episode. My uh, reply... I tried XFCE 4.18 on Void and it didn't have the whisker menu delay either so we just shrugged our shoulders at that. Thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed the review. I appreciate the praise and Biku writes back and says your sincerity and your hard work behind these reviews deserves praise and again I want to thank Biku for his kind words because some months where I'm Really busy. I don't have as much time to devote to these as I would like to.
0: Moving to announcements. For chatting with us further, you may choose to join our Telegram group or our Discord channel. Uh, where can we reach you, Dale?
2: I am Dale underscore C D L. That's on Telegram and Discord. And my email is dale underscore cdl at me. And I think Londoner had commented in one of the forums, I can't remember. And I didn't really realize this was an Americanism. CDL is an abbreviation for commercial driver's license, which is what I have to operate my company's truck, just in case anyone else was wondering what that meant. <laughs>
0: At least until you get that job at System 76.
2: Yeah, I, that was another thing. I sent a submission to them just on a whim, and that was like a month ago. So we'll find out. Maybe I'll get a surprise one of these days in an email.
1: You never know. And you'll never, you'll never know if you don't try either. That's absolutely true.
2: That's what I told my other friends. I told them, I said, hey, I threw the ball. I'm going to see if they can catch
1: it. That's right. Good for
2: you. Thank
1: you. I can be reached on just about any kind of social media or chat platform, and I use my full name, Eric Adams. For example, if you were to join either our Telegram or Discord groups, you'd find me in both of those places. I'm also on Mastodon, Matrix, Twitter, and, and so on. How about you, Moss?
0: And you can hear me every week on Full Circle Weekly News and Mintcast. My email is bardmoss at pm.me. And I'm on Mastodon as at Zyvola at hosttux.social. Plus, you can find me, Dale, and Dylan at itsmoss.com. Before we go, we would like to thank all those people who make this project possible.
2: Archive.org for storing and helping to distribute this program.
1: Audacity, which we use for recording and editing the show. Tony Hughes for managing the website and producing
0: and editing the podcast.
2: Joshua Lowe for our work on our logo.
1: All those who work on the teams which are creating, adapting, and maintaining the Linux distros we have reviewed this episode.
0: Midair Machine creators of the song "Streets of Santivo" used as our music under Creative Commons license.
2: Thanks to Linus Torvalds for the kernel. Richard Stallman for the GNU toolkits and all those who have worked behind the scenes on free and open source and Libre software.
1: We'll be back next month. Thank all of you for listening.